How you doing this weekend? Good. It's great. Well, good morning, or good evening, or wherever you happen to be. I want to welcome those of you who are uh, joining us right now on the internet, or uh, on a podcast, or maybe one of the venues here at Long Point Road, or uh, one of our off-site campuses. We're glad that you guys uh, have joined us too. What a great day! Let, let, let me tell you a story. Um, there were about five or six of us gathered around a table just a few weeks ago, and we were kind of brainstorming some ways that we could really enhance the series that we're in right now. Uh, we're studying the book of Philemon, which is one chapter, 25 verses, eight weeks. And it's the story of um, God breaking into an, a kind of an everyday guy's life with a, um, just an aha moment, you know. And it's a guy, a fairly wealthy guy, who has a church in his house. And he has a Kairos moment when God breaks in and changes his world. And that happens when uh, God really asks him to expand his family, or the Greek word is oikos, uh, to include an unusual character, an unusual person. And what we want to do with the series, we want to do several things. We want to we want to uh, challenge you to be God's people. We want to challenge you to live on mission every day. And, we, and, and, and I want to teach you some things. In fact, my next sermon I'm going to do, I'm so excited about just some practical ways to live out God's mission for you. So a, as a part of that, uh, one of the people at the table said, well, you know, have you read uh, Same Kind of Different as Me, a book by Ron Hall? And somebody else said, it's the most impactful book I've ever read in my life. I stayed up, I cried uh, during the night as I wrote it. And then two or three other people said the same thing. And they said, it's kind of a uh, modern day parable of kind of what Philemon went through. And uh, so I asked a little bit about it. And, you know, somebody else said, but, you know, Ron Hall, I mean, that book has sold over a million copies. It's been on the um, bestseller list of the New York Times for a hundred and some odd straight weeks. He speaks all over the world, including the White House. There's no way he would come and speak to us. One lesson my dad taught me years ago as a leader, and you could write this down if you're a leader, is never say no for somebody else. Allow them the opportunity to either say yes or no. And so we called Ron. Uh, and that's a whole story in and of itself. It's crazy. I'll tell you sometime. What we found out was that Ron comes to Charleston fairly regularly and attends our church when he comes. And uh, <laughs> and so he said he would love to speak for us, but he could only do it one time. And so he did it. He did such a great job uh, last night. You're going to get the opportunity to experience that. And so here's what I want to do. The book is about the relationship between a homeless man named Denver Moore and a, and a very wealthy art collector named Ron Hall. We wanted you to meet Denver Moore. Denver used to travel with him, uh, but he can't for health purposes anymore. And so we have a video of Denver. So Denver's going to come on and greet you, and then you're going to hear from Ron Hall. So uh, I'll be back in just a few minutes. Hello, I'm Denver Moore. Thank you all for coming. And I thank God for giving me the opportunity to speak to you all today to let you know that without you and your help in supporting the book and Ms. Devers' dreams, I wouldn't be here sitting here speaking to you today and to just let you know that our limitation is God's 
opportunity. And God sent someone by to just see me and where I were, and not to just see me with the eyes, but felt me with their spirit. And they determined that it was the Christ could be in me, could be the hope of glory for many people who have read the book and who have participated in trying to make a change in America today because today needs us. And every day is today. There's no such thing as tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes, so it don't never end. God made us all out of the same thing, even though we have different jobs on this planet. And it's a thing that we do for nothing that we keep forever. So sometimes we have to look at people who is less fortunate than, than we are. And we, had, we need to support them in a sense to understand that we are all God's children and we are all homeless working our way home. God specializes in things that is impossible and he can do what no other can do. And God specializes in turning trash into treasures because God is the only treasure that we have, which is the supreme being of the universe. And he specializes in taking the things that we don't want and turning it into a treasure. So God gave me a business and that's a recycling business. It's turning trash into treasures, whatever it may be. And in that way, I can look at it as we all homeless, just working our way home. Thank you very much, and I would appreciate it very much if all of you would remember me in your prayer, because I want you to know that I'm not perfect at no end, and neither am I trying to be perfect, because if I ever get perfect at any end, then I won't be here no more. So I have to leave a little something wrong where God's going to keep me hanging around until I get finished. The job ain't done. <laughs> uh, I love that man. I love the man. He, he changed my life. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, and though he's not, his health is why he's not able to travel with me anymore. He told me all this good, clean living is just about to kill him. So, uh, but he told me, he said, I know you're going to be speaking in a church down there, Mr. Ron, so make sure you tell them, folks, that though our lips is always flapping like Bible leaves, that we ain't no preachers. We just an old art dealer and an ex-con, two sinners saved by grace with a message of hope. And I thank you very much, Pastor Greg. It took a lot of faith from you to invite an art dealer to come up here and expect me to tell the truth. So... And I appreciate that. And the Walker family that has embraced me like the prodigal son and loved me like I was a long-lost soldier that came home. And they have loved me with the greatest uh, hospitality. They have the gift of hospitality here from your fellowship. And I thank them for that. You know, there were two guys that were driving by a group of homeless people that were living under the bridges. And one of them asked his friend, he said, you know, I would really like to ask God why he allows all this homeless and poverty in our city. 
And his friend said, well, I think that's a fair question to ask God. So why don't you ask it? He said, because I'm afraid. I'm afraid to ask God that question. He said, come on now. Why are you afraid to ask God that question? And he said, because I'm afraid God will ask me the same question. Well, God does ask us that question. He asked that question to us in Luke chapter, 20, chapter 10, verse 25 through 37, the story of the Good Samaritan. And I'm sure that if you look at that passage closely, as I have over the last few years, that the, the, when the priest and the Levite saw the man in the ditch, they had a chance, obviously, to do two things. One was to lead him in the ditch, and one was to get him out of the ditch. But when they saw the man in the ditch, I think this must be what they asked themselves. They must have said, what will happen to me if I stop and help that person? And therefore, they made the choice to cross the road and leave him in the ditch. But the good news is, and praise God for a good Samaritan, they came along and instead, when they saw the man in the ditch, this good Samaritan didn't ask, what will happen to me if I stop and help? But instead he asked, what will happen to him if I don't? You know, uh, there's something very tragic about our story, and, and I think most of you that have read our book would think that what I'm going to say is that I had a beautiful wife that died and God took uh, as a result of cancer very young in her life. But that's not really what I'm referring to. I'm referring to the fact that Denver and I have done over 600 events all across America. And people come to hear us in the thousands. We've spoken probably and our readers measure into the millions. And they come and hear and they read our story because they think it's such an extraordinary story. But the truth is Denver and I pray this all the time. That one day we will live in a world where our story will no longer be extraordinary but will truly be ordinary. Where all the people of the world who have found themselves in the ditches of life will find a true good Samaritan and not just a loving Christian who flips a coin or gives a sandwich to a beggar on the streets. A few years ago, a couple of years ago now, we were in one of the largest cities in America and they were hosting us there to do a fundraiser for the homeless in their city. And... We were meeting with all of the city council and the mayor and their coalition on the homeless. And they had just drafted and spent $2 million to draft a plan on a 10 years to end homelessness in their city. And they wanted to share that with us. And they spent about an hour telling us all the points of the plan. And when they got through, Denver said, hey, I got a question for you guys. And they said, what is it? And they said, he said, why is it going to take you 10 years? They said, whoa, well, that's a good question. But here's our answer. We've got to, first of all, we have to raise the money. Then we've got to build the buildings. Then we've got to hire the staff. We've got to put the programs in place. And maybe by seven or eight or nine years, we'll make a headway on it. And we hopefully, by ten years, according to our plan, we will end homelessness in our city. So I think that's a good plan. But let me tell you something. He said, can you all tell me how many homeless you all got in your town? And they said, yes. We have over 6,000 homeless that without a place to sleep every night. He said, hmm. He said, well, how many churches y'all got in y'all's town? They said, well, we have over 6,500 churches. He said, there's your answer. Everybody take them one. Somebody ain't getting none. We're going to solve this problem in 30 days. So... 
Well, you know, Mother Teresa, one thing that she said really hit me one time. And she said, you know, it's so fashionable for everyone to talk about the poor and the homeless. It's just not fashionable to speak with them. Denver and I had about 12 years ago when he and I first became friends. We were walking the streets one day and he said, uh, Mr. Ron, are you one of them Christians? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I am, Denver. Why do you think I'm down here trying to help everybody? He said, well, then maybe you can answer me this question. He said, can you tell me why all you Christians go to church on Sunday and worship one homeless man and then turn your back on the first one you see on Monday? Denver, I don't know that I have an answer to that. He said, well, let me tell you something, Mr. Ron. You never know whose eyes God is watching you through, and it ain't going to be your teacher or your Sunday school teacher. He said, let me just tell you something. He said, you just don't know who that person might be. It might be just one of those people that you see in the ditches of life or on the street that you pass by that God's just checking you out to see how much you love him. I'll tell you that Denver has become just a little bit of a rock star as we travel around. In fact, the first time we ever got invited to go anywhere it was about four and a half years ago after our book came out. And we got invited to go to uh, Seattle, Washington was one of the first places we went. And we, as we got off the plane, he always wears that hat that you saw. And so as we got off the plane, some ladies came running up to him and said, Can we have your autograph? And he said, Who do you think I am? And they said, B.B. King. He said, No, I'm not B.B. King. He said... <laughs> He said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even going to tell you who I am. But uh, anyway, uh, a couple of days later, we came back through the same uh, airport and some lady came up to him and asked for his autograph. He said, I ain't B.B. King. She said, I know you're Denver Moore. I saw you on TV. But a couple of years ago, we got invited to the White House. It was one of the greatest days of my life to see the President of the United States extend his hand to Denver Moore and say, Denver Moore, what an honor to meet you, sir. And I thought, wow, the President of the United States knows the man who was formerly the most dangerous homeless man had been on the streets longer than anybody in Texas. And he knows his name and he's honoring him with his own day in the White House. And as we left, we had a private luncheon with the President and the family and all of that. And we spent three or four hours in the White House and the tour of all... And as we were leaving, we were, went through the Marine Honor Guard. We got in a limo, and as we were pulling away from the White House grounds, Denver started laughing hysterically, and I said, Denver, what is so funny? And he said, Mr. Ron, I done gone from living in the bushes to eating with the bushes. He said, God bless America. This is a great country. <laughs> but as we were leaving, and as we, he said, but you know, the truth is, Mr. Ron, you and I both know that we ain't nothing but just a couple of nobodies. But he said, you know, the good news is we were loved by a real somebody. And that's somebody, the star of our show, other than, of course, God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the star of the show was Deborah Hall. She was my wife. She was Miss Debbie to Denver. She was a good Samaritan, and she was a champion for the homeless. And same kind of different as me is her story. And I never want to forget that apart from her faithfulness to God and the forgiveness that she showed me that I did not deserve, that we would have no story to tell. And it's Denver's a story. Denver, who was a man deep in a ditch, in bad need of a good Samaritan. He can testify, What Difference Do It Make?, which is the name of our new book. He can testify, What Difference Do It Make?, when someone shows you the love of Christ and not just gives you a sandwich and a dollar bill and tells you 
God bless you. And while I was privileged to witness both of their lives, I can tell you that I am merely their storyteller. Shortly after Deborah died of cancer, almost 10 years ago now, Denver moved in with me. And uh, one morning we were sitting there and he said, Mr. Ron, there ain't nobody ever going to believe our story. He said, we got to write us a book. And I said, what's this we, Kimosabi? He said, uh, I didn't know you could read or write. He said, well, I can't read or write. He said, but I've got a plan. He said, I'm going to tell you my part of the story and you write that down and you know your part of the story, so you write that down and then we'll put the two of them together and we'll have us a book. And I said, hey, that's a great, great plan, Denver. <laughs> but I'll tell you, we, for the next three and a half years, we sat at the breakfast table and we wrote us a book. But we got turned down more than the sheets in a five-star hotel. We could not get anybody to read our book or publish our book. But finally, by the grace of God, we found a publisher with no budget or PR. But they did have a plan. They were going to give one book to Oprah Winfrey, and then it would be lights out. We would be on the Oprah show, and then all the morning talk shows, and everything would be going really well. But that didn't happen. In fact, it still hasn't happened. So just last year, Denver and I heard an old country song, and we said, hey, I think we're going to dedicate that one to Oprah. And the lines go a little bit like this. It says, since my phone still ain't ringing, I'm assuming it still ain't you. So that's for Oprah. <laughs> but after we got one of our last turndowns, which was many, many turndowns, I was reading one one day that actually came in from my daughter's namesake and my wife's best friend in college, and she had turned us down and said our book was not worthy of being in a book fair, and therefore we were not invited after we had already made plans to go. And as I was reading Denver the letter, I was about to cry, and I said, Denver, what are we going to do? He said, we're going to stop and bless those folks right now, Mr. Ron, because they did us a favor. I said, okay, I'm not tracking with you on this one. How is turning us down all these times doing us any favors? And he said, well, first of all, we didn't write this book for Oprah Winfrey. We didn't write this book for all the ABs and CBs and all those programs that we were supposed to be on. He said, we wrote this book for Miss Debbie. But most important of all, we wrote this book for God. He said, so don't you never ask nobody to do nothing again as long as you and I both live. He said, we're going to give this book over to God. You let him take care of his business and you and I are going to be just fine. And so we gave that book over to God that day, and God got real quiet. We didn't hear from God for a while, and books were stacking up in our living room, and, and I didn't know we needed to clear some of them out, and I didn't know how we were going to do it. But finally, by the grace of God, we get a call. We're in Dallas, Texas is where we live. Our story took place in Fort Worth. But Denver and I live in Dallas, but finally we get a call from Boston, Massachusetts, of all places, the first call that we get, and anybody asking us to be on a TV show... And they wanted us to be on a morning talk show in a couple of days. So we showed up live by satellite at a TV show in Dallas. And as they were counting down, they had told us what to dress like and what to wear and, and how to talk and which cameras to look at. And then all of a sudden, um, we were live on TV. And the first question they threw out to Denver Moore, and they said, Mr. Moore, you have co-authored a wonderful book on friendship and redemption and hope. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? And I can tell you, old Denver just went stone cold silent on live television. And for maybe 10 or 15 seconds, there was nothing going on. And I was about to answer the question and jump in there when all of a sudden he pointed his finger at the camera and he said, Now I'm going to tell you all the truth. I don't read and I don't write. So I haven't, I didn't write that book and I ain't even read it. Now what's your next question? So... <laughs> 
And my mind flashed back to him telling me this was God's book, and I thought, God help us if we ever get invited <laughs> to do anything else. But it must be because now we have been 132 consecutive weeks on the New York Times bestselling list without any advertising or PR, but it's God's story, and God has chosen to bless it. So all the praise and glory I give to God for blessing that book. When our book first came out, that, thank you, that is for God, the, the, the applause there. But when our book first came out, we got invited to Bible studies like you cannot believe. We were invited to probably 50 Bible studies in a period of three or four weeks. And every time that we went anywhere, people would recognize us and they'd say, Would you please come and tell your story at our Bible study? And finally, after this one lady was so persistent one day and she wouldn't take no for an answer... As she was walking away, Denver looked at me and he said, I need to ask you a question. I said, what is it, Denver? He said, do all white folk got Bible studies? And I said, wow, it sure seems like it, doesn't it, Denver? He said, yeah. He said, but you know what's curious to me? He said, of all these people that have invited us to Bible studies, there ain't nary a one of them ever invited us to know Bible doings. He said, are they just studying or is anybody out there doing? He said, because I don't know nothing about studying. And, but if they're doing something, tell them to call me and I'll show up. So, I'll tell you, in a world full of smart bombs, we need a few more old fools like Denver. The same kind of different as me is a story about how Fort Worth, Texas, and now many cities across America was changed when a godly woman, Miss Debbie, decided to go into the inner city, the deep, nasty inner city of Fort Worth, Texas, and do some Bible doings. She saw the people in the ditches, and unlike the priest and the Levite who asked, what will happen to me if I stop and help? She was the good Samaritan who asked, what will happen to them if I don't? She vowed that she would never worship one homeless man on Sunday and turn her back on the first one she saw on Monday. And she vowed that she was going to love all the ugly ones, and she was going to love the smelly ones, and she was going to love the crazy ones, and even the dangerous ones. She refused to call them homeless, vagrants, street people. She took all of those terms out of her vocabulary, and she replaced them with only two words, God's people. And our story is also a love story about how Debbie's love and her Christ-like forgiveness gave new life to two men who had found themselves in a ditch. One was Denver Moore. That after 10 years in Angola State Penitentiary, the hellhole of America, every morning when he woke up, he had no purpose in life and no desire to live, and he would be angry when he would see his toes would still wiggle, and he had to, and he had to spend another day here on earth. And me, after I had dishonored my wife and her marriage, she threw my sin as far as the east is from the west. And I vowed that I would love her like she had never been loved before. You know, that's the way Christ wants us to love him because he's done the same for us. He's thrown all of our sins as far as the east is from the west. And for those of you that have read our book, know that Denver's life began very tragically. Many, many tragic things happened to him early on in life, but none more tragic than when he was a young teenage boy on a red dirt road in Red River Parish, Louisiana. And on that day, I don't even speak about it from anywhere that we talk because you'll have to read the book to find out if you don't know what I'm talking about. But he made a vow that day that he would never again speak to a white woman and he would never again trust a white person. And for my part of the story and for Debbie's part of the story, it really began about 1998 when I decided that I had made enough money to live on the rest of my life. 
And I wanted to be a rancher and a cowboy, and we were going to be moving back to Fort Worth, Texas to be closer to our ranch. Debbie and I had both been living purpose-driven lives, and Debbie's purpose in life had been serving our Almighty God. But unfortunately, my purpose in, in life had been serving the Almighty Dollar. I had become wealthy as an art dealer, buying and selling things that you probably wouldn't even like, like Picassos and Jackson Pollocks and selling them to museums and places all over the world. And I can tell you the last thing on my mind was spending even one second in a homeless shelter, though I had written checks to support things. I had never spent any time in a homeless shelter. But God had a different plan for me and for my life, and He was about to reset my compass, and He was about to rewrite my life story. Debbie and I were building a new contemporary dream home that I had dreamed of for years. And it was in this new contemporary dream home that she began to dream. And the first night she dreamed there was going to be a new mission built unlike any homeless mission that had ever been built in America. But it was going to be a beautiful mission with new furniture and the, men, and the people would be given new clothes. And it would be landscaped with beautiful flowers like our spring pastures at Rocky Top Ranch where we where we shared that together. And then the next night she dreamed another dream. And in this dream she saw the face of a homeless man. And the next morning she woke me and she said, Ron, it was a dream like none other. She said, I saw this man's face. And she said, it was like the verse in Ecclesiastes. There was a poor man found in our city who was wise. And by his wisdom, our city was changed. She said, I believe if we can find this man, Ron, and my dream is true, we will see revival in our city. She said, would you go with me to the mission? I think that my dream is true. So I didn't go to the ranch that day. Instead, we got in my pickup and we drove into the inner city and we found the Union Gospel Mission where she told him that we would begin serving an evening meal there until further notice. And things went rather well for the first couple of weeks after I kind of got over my... Um, arrogance and, and my, uh, I don't know, I just, I didn't feel right. I didn't like the way it smelled and I didn't like the way the peop people looked. They didn't look like the same people that I saw in the museums every day where I went and where my life was being spent. And so I was arrogant enough to think that these people were less than me and I was doing them a big favor. But anyway, after, uh, after a couple of weeks, things were going pretty well and we were about to shut down the, the serving line and and uh, actually, a big fight just started breaking out, and it was, uh, it was fully engaged. The whole uh, auditorium, the whole dining hall, there were about 250, 300 men, but tables were being overturned, and there were uh, curses and blood, and people tossed off the walls and screaming. And I have never been so scared in my life, so I decided that as I felt the fight moving my way, that I would take a hiding place. So I found under the stainless steel serving line, I found a nice little place I could crawl back in under there. And as I was kind of crawling in the serving line, I thought for a second, well, I wonder what's happened to Debbie. So I kind of looked around, <laughs> and all of a sudden I see that she's standing on her tiptoes, and she's dancing like a cheerleader on the sideline of a football game, and she was saying, that's him, that's him. And I said, that's who? And it's just as I looked over the stainless steel counter, there was only one man left standing, and he was screaming at the top of his lungs, I'm going to kill whoever done it. I'm going to kill whoever stole my shoes. And she said, the one threatening to kill everyone is the one I had the dream about. And then she looked down at me, still cowered down below the counter, and she said, And Ron, 
I believe I heard from God that you have to be his friend. And I looked up at her and I said, But Debbie, I was not at that meeting you had with God. And if I'm going to be friends with someone who wants to kill everybody, I think I should go talk to God myself. So I was one of God's people who was serving next to us on the line. I said, Who is that crazy man out there? And he said, I don't even know his name. It may be something like Dallas. He said, but he's been on the streets longer than anybody in town. He rules the streets with fear and intimidation. And he said, most of us just call him the lion of the jungle. But some people call him suicide because he said he ain't afraid to die. Don't mess with a man. He'll hurt you. I said, that is really good advice. And for you, my friend, I am thinking and taking your advice. And as opposed to my wife who thinks that I should be his friend. But anyway, at the insistence of Debbie, every morning as I would head to the ranch, she'd say, would you just please make a little circle through the inner city and see if you can find the man of my dreams. So I would make a little circle through and I would kind of see him by a dumpster. I would see him over in the bushes and he would take off running. And I was glad to report that, yes, I did see him, honey, but I couldn't get him in my car, which I thanked God for. But after a few weeks, we were serving, in the, we were finishing serving an evening meal and uh, all of a sudden, he appeared out of nowhere with two plates in his hand, and he just stuck them in our face. And Debbie had made a vow that she was going to learn the name of every homeless person on the streets and what their specific needs were and pray for them daily by name and by their needs and try to match up those needs. And so she leans down to make eye contact with him, and she said, Well, hello there. <laughs> My name is Debbie. What's your name? And I can tell you, if looks could kill, she'd been dead on the spot. He put a drill bit stare into her eyes and he said, Ma'am, I am a very bad man. You don't know who you're messing with. You just shut up and give me some food and I'm going to get on out of here. Whew. I have never been so scared. Just a few weeks earlier, I'd seen him threaten to kill everybody. And now he's screaming in my wife's face. And I'm thinking the same thing. So all of a sudden, I look over and she leaps over the serving counter like it wasn't even there. She jumps right in front of him and starts tapping him on the nose saying, you are not a bad man. You are, in fact, a good man. And God has a calling on your life, and you're going to live to see it. His fists were doubled up like this, and he was shaking. And I thought, he's going to knock her out. He's going to hit her. And I looked back, and my fists were doubled up, and they were shaking. And I looked down at my fists, and I thought, well, I don't know why my fists are doubled up. If he hits her, I'm running out the back door. She got herself in this mess, and I'm not going to fight somebody who wants to kill everybody. But after just a minute or so, he dropped his hands, skirted around her, and left the dining hall. One of God's people that was standing next to me, he said, Man, oh man, I never in my life thought I would see some skinny little white lady tame the lion of the jungle. But I can tell you, for the next five months, at Debbie's insistence, I drove through the inner city every morning trying to find this man the man of her dreams, and get him in my car. And it took me five months to get him in the car. And I went to breakfast one morning in, in breakfast, and I, I found out that he'd never been to school a day in his life. He'd been on the streets longer than anybody in town that he could remember. He'd been in Angola State Penitentiary. But I found out that he used to sleep on the sidewalk right outside where I parked my new Mercedes every morning, right outside my gallery. He was one of the homeless people that I used to call the police on and say, would you please come get this trash off the streets in the front of my art gallery? Not once in all those years had I offered this man a penny or a cup of water. 
And at the end of that breakfast, he looked at me and he said, uh, what is it you want from me? He said, I've had no peace in my life since your wife showed up on the streets. Before. <laughs> I said, hey, man, I just want to be your friend. And he looked at me with this incredulous look and he said, you, you want to be my friend? I said, that's it. Straight up. Just want to be your friend. He said, man, I'm going to have to think about that. And I thought to myself, hey, buddy, you just looked a gift horse in the mouth. You don't know who I am and what I can do for you. If you want some new clothes, you're probably going to get it. If you want a little car, I can do that for you. A little apartment or the house, whatever Debbie wants you to have, you're going to have because you are the man of her dreams. And I'm going to do anything she asks me the rest of my life for the forgiveness that she has shown me. You don't know who you're talking to. I was so arrogant. I didn't believe that this man had anything to offer me in a friendship, that I would be his great benefactor. And if he behaved himself and cleaned up, I would take him to a restaurant and show him what it was like to be rich for a day and make him think about all the bad choices he had made in his life that kept him from being just like me. That was the person, the arrogant person that I was. A couple of weeks later, I saw him taking trash out of a dumpster. And I pulled up in my pickup and I said, hey, you want to go get some coffee? And he said, yeah, I guess so. So he gets in the pickup and we're driving to Starbucks. And he starts pounding on the dash. Hey, man, why don't you leave me alone? And he scared me so badly. He was screaming at me in my car. And he scared me and I thought, man, I'd love to leave you alone, but my wife won't let me. But I can make myself a promise. If I get you out of the car today and I'm still alive, I'm going to leave you alone because you scare me and I don't want to die at your hands. But anyway, we get to Starbucks and I'm sitting out on the sidewalk and he looked at me and he said, uh, hey, I've been thinking a lot about what you asked me. And I said, what did I ask you that required any thought? And he said, you asked me if I would be your friend. I said, of course I did. So what do you think? He said, well, there's something I heard about white folks that really bothers me, and it's got to do with fishing. And I said, Denver, I'm not a fisherman. I'm a cowboy, a rancher, art dealer, a few things like that. I know a little bit about that, but I don't even own a tackle box or a rod and reel. So what is it that you want to ask me about fishing? He said, well, there's something I heard about white folks that when they go fishing, they do this thing called catch and release. And I said, of course they do, Denver. It's a sport. <clears throat> don't you get it? He said, no, I don't get it. Because back on the plantation, he said, we would go out in the morning and dig us some worms and cut us a cane pole and sit on the riverbank. And when we finally got something on our line, we were really proud of what we caught. And we'd take it back home and we'd show it to our friends and share it with them. He said, so it just occurred to me, if you're a white man that's fishing for a friend and you're going to catch and release, then I ain't got no desire to be your friend. I'll tell you, we all face moments like that in our lives. I'll tell you, my mind flashed back at that moment to Debbie's dream that this was a poor man who was wise because he, what he spoke to me was the wisest thing I'd ever heard on friendship. And if I ever heard from God in my life, I believe at that moment I had heard. And I had just a second to, to realize that this was one of those moments in my life that was a defining moment. Was I going to accept the friendship of this man that actually scared me and I had witnessed threatened to kill everybody in the room and I was in the room so I assumed that that was me as well. Or would I be honest with him and just tell him I was only doing it because my wife had wanted me to. But I realized if I told him I had to be his friend, I had to stick with it. 
And I believe God laid it on my heart to tell me to be this man's friend. This was my defining moment in life and when God reset my compass. I told him, Jenner, I'll be your friend. And he said, then, Mr. Ron, you got a friend for life. And he stood up and he gave me a hug. And the fear that I had for this man just minutes before that I thought he might actually kill me melted on the sidewalk there at Starbucks. And I can tell you he became a part of our family. We took him in. We started taking him to our church. We took him to our country club. We took him everywhere we went, weddings and events and anything. He became a part of our family. He became the professor and I became the student. But a few months into our friendship, one day he got a really sad look on his face over a lunch. And I said, Denver, what is, what's, what's so going on with you today? And he said, he said, Mr. Ron, he said, you know, what Miss Debbie is doing for the homeless on the streets of Fort Worth, she has become precious to God. He said, you know, when you become precious to God, you become important to Satan. He said, watch your backside. Something really bad is getting ready to happen to Miss Debbie. He said, the thief comes in the night and be watching. A few days later, she was diagnosed with cancer, very severe, aggressive, stage four cancer. Some doctors thought she would live three months, and some thought a year. So we went back to the hospital. Uh, she was in the hospital having surgery, and my son and I went back into the inner city to find Denver. And so we went to the Union Gospel Mission, and we saw a group of men praying in the hall. These were men that she knew by name. And, and I said, hey, you guys, uh, have you all seen Denver? And they said, no. And I said, so we started to walk away. And they said, hey, do you know what we're doing? And I said, no, I don't have a clue. They said, we're here praying for you and your family. And so my son and I joined them in prayer. And then we walked into the kitchen and I saw Chef Jim. And I said, hey, have you seen Denver today? And he said, no, I haven't seen him since early this morning. But you could probably find him across the streets in one of those old warehouses. He sometimes goes over there and sleeps on a big old pile of clothes. And I looked at my watch and it was right after... 12 o'clock and I thought what the lazy lazy man here he is spending his day sleeping and he's had uh, all the time I'm spending with him has done nothing to make him want to change his life chef Jim saw that arrogant look on my face and he said hey Ron you don't have a clue what's going on in here do you and I said no I don't and he said Denver heard that Miss Debbie was sick and he told me <clears throat> that he said I know she's got friends that will be praying for her all day he said, but I want to be the one that prays for her all night. So he goes outside when the sun goes down by the dumpster where he lives, and he prays for her all night long. And in the morning, he comes in and we have coffee, and then we pray for you together. I'll tell you, I was so convicted of my arrogance that I had judged him so harshly, I couldn't even go over and thank him. But the man that I thought had nothing to offer me for the next 19 months that she lived stayed up all night long in prayer praying for my wife, giving me the greatest gift I had ever had in my life. And on the last day that she was alive, he came to tell us that that would be the final day. And he wanted to have a private time with her. So he went in and he kneeled beside her bed just alone. And he told her, he said, Miss Debbie, you don't know. I know that the only reason you've been hanging on so long is because you don't know who's going to take care of God's people when you're gone. He said, but I heard from God this morning that if you will lay down your torch, that I will pick it up. And the man who swore he would never speak to another white woman kneeled beside her bed and kissed her on the forehead and told her he would see her on the other side. Two days later, he spoke at her funeral and he shared her dream for the new mission that she had, the beautiful mission. 
And he shared that after all those years on the street, that she was the only one to love him. And he said it was a little bit like that old hymn, when nothing else could help, love lifted me. He said it was the Christ and Miss Debbie that became the hope of glory for him. And I'll tell you, it's the Christ in you here tonight that will be the hope of glory for people in your city. By noon the next day after her funeral, more than $500,000 came in to build a new mission. Within one year, $5 million, and now more than $12 million in the finest mission in all of Fort Worth, in all of America, stands in downtown Fort Worth. Denver, the man who had nothing to offer, me, and I thought was trash in the streets in our city, was named the philanthropist of the year for the city of Fort Worth for his work with the homeless and his millions of dollars that he's raised all across America. And in closing, I just want to read one excerpt from our book that illustrates how Debbie's dream really became a reality. The, sun, the Sunday after the groundbreaking for the new mission, Denver and I pulled into the parking lot of the new Mount Calvary Baptist Church, a church in a depressed neighborhood in southeast Fort Worth. Pastor Tom Franklin had heard Denver speak at Deborah's memorial service and for months had kept after me to try to convince him to come and preach at his church. And finally, Denver agreed. I had prayed for a standing room only crowd, but by the looks of the parking lot, folks were standing somewhere else that morning. Pastor Tom read my thoughts. He said, don't worry, Ron. Everyone the Lord wants to be here is going to be here this morning. And as the service began and the tiny congregation filled the air with old spirituals, Denver and I huddled on the back row. Pastor Tom had wanted me to introduce Denver from the pulpit and spend a few minutes telling his life story first. But as I suspected, old Denver wasn't having any of that. And during the singing, he and I huddled on the back row to negotiate what he would let me say. It ain't nobody's business how I got here, he whispered. And besides, I don't want to tell them nothing about me. I just want to tell them about my Lord. I said, so what do you want me to say? And he paused and he stared down at the Bible that was laying next to me on the bench. Just tell them I'm a nobody that's trying to tell everybody about somebody that can save anybody. And Mr. Ron, that's all you need to tell them, folks. And so when the singing stopped, I walked down to the front and said just that. Then Denver took the pulpit. At first, his voice quivered a bit, but it was loud. And the longer he preached, the louder and stronger it became. And like a magnet, his voice pulled people in off the streets. And by the time he wiped the sweat off his face and sat down, the pews were full. And like a cannonball, Pastor Tom shot out of his seat into the pulpit, raising his arms toward the people. He said, I believe God wants Denver to come back and preach a revival in our city. The congregation, most of whom had been drawn into the sanctuary by Denver's voice, exploded into applause. And my mind flashed back to Debbie's dream, her seeing Denver's face and recalling the words of Solomon. There was found in the city a certain poor man who was wise. And by his wisdom, he saved the city. Something new had begun. It was something that I had certain had Debbie Dancing for joy, joy on streets of gold. Father God, a lot of us have made a mess out of our lives. But with you, there is forgiveness, there's hope, and redemption. God, you can take our trashy lives and by the blood of Christ recycle them into treasures that glorify you. And apart from you, we are all nobodies. But place in our heart, Lord, the desire to step out of the comfort zones of our homes and churches and tell everyone about you, the one who can save anybody. Lord, the truth is, as Denver says, we're all homeless. 
just working our way home. And as we journey down the road to our eternal home, help us see your people who have fallen in the ditches with a fresh new kingdom vision. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.